Amen. If you have elementary age kids, uh, we love to have them be part of our Vine Kids time. Also, our si- uh, fifth, sixth, and seventh graders are going to go out that back door there. We've got opportunities for them, and elementary age kids are going to go out this door. We'd love for them to be a part of what <clears throat> our folks have planned for them this morning. Um, if you're here for the first time, you definitely don't have to send your kids. Uh, they're welcome to stay with you. We doesn't bother us one way or the other, whatever you feel comfortable with, but we have great uh, age-appropriate stuff going on for both of those groups of kids that we're really excited about, and uh, Cherry and, and those folks have done such a great job, and so it's a, it's a real privilege. So we have started this journey through the Gospel of John, and, and I've made no apologies about it. It's going to take us a significant amount of time to get through it. Uh, it's my first time to ever really preach through one of the gospel letters. We've done all kinds of books, Old Testament, New Testament, all kinds of stuff. But we never really tackled a gospel letter, and we've, we've sort of stepped into John uh, very intentionally. And, and John's goal as a gospel writer is very different than the other three gospels. John's goal is not to tell the story of the life of Jesus, right? He's not recording a historical account. John's entire goal is to show us that Jesus is God. He is consumed with the incarnation, with the deity of Jesus. And so everything that he does is incredibly intentional to point us to the fact that Jesus is not just some great miracle worker teacher, but that he is in fact God in the flesh and that he has come to save and redeem, right? That he is the answer for all of our struggles and fears and failures and that he is eternal life and that in him we might know that life. And that is the the sort of synopsis of John's entire gospel. We spent five weeks in chapter five because it is so theologically deep and rich uh, because John is spending so much time in that chapter setting up for us the relationship of the father and the son. And so it's perhaps the most important chapter in John's gospel because what he's doing is he's showing us the nature of that relationship and the reality of the incarnation, that that Jesus is in fact one with the Father, right? And that he stepped into humanity to redeem humanity as only God could do. And that entire chapter wraps up the gospel theology in in its course. So we spent a lot of time there unpacking those verses a piece at a time. In fact, it took us five weeks to get through it. But we are now officially moving into week 21, and we're stepping into to really two big, huge, amazing miracles. And they're very intentional miracles that John puts in his gospel uh, right there to show us evidence that what Jesus has just said about his relationship with the Father is actually true. So John very intentionally records miracles in, in strategic places. He doesn't, he's not concerned with the chronological order of Jesus' life from birth to death. He moves things so that they fit into the places uh, that give evidence of the things that Jesus is saying. And so he's going to put these two miracles back to back right after a section where Jesus just has explained that he and the Father are one. And these miracles are going to support um, that. They're going to be evidence for the claims that Jesus is making. And so it's really important that we understand this, this sort of gospel letter in its context. And John picks these two miracles that are really really well known. And we're going to explore the feeding of the 5,000 today and then Jesus walking on water um, next week. But the one we're looking at today is really important because it's the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, interestingly enough. Um, A lot of them have three, occasionally two, but this is the only one that all four Gospel writers record. And we kind of got to ask ourselves why or what happened that was so significant that it impacted these guys in such a way that all four of them made sure to include this in their accounts. And they each sort of tell it in a really unique uh, perspective. And so we're going to be focusing on this miracle today, but we're going to be looking at it through a different perspective, not so much the lens of Jesus feeding 5,000 and the incredible miracle that that, that is, 
but instead through the perspective of people, that Jesus really was a deep lover of people, that he loves you and that he loves me and that he loves humanity, and it's really sort of evidenced in this, um, this miracle moment. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have one, there might be one right there in front of you. Um, you're welcome to use that one, or you're welcome to follow along with me. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to sit it up a little bit, and then we'll just sort of dive in together and, and take it apart a little bit. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for the opportunity to gather here <clears throat> this morning. Lord, I know that there are a lot of different places um, that people could be, and there's a lot of different things going on in our lives. And so, Lord, the importance of gathering together as a corporate community and just sitting before, before you is sitting before you is, is important. It's valuable. It's, it's part of our existence as the church. And so, God, I'm grateful that we would be able to commit that time to come here and just worship you. Lord, I know that we all walked in here, too, with a lot of different issues and struggles and fears, anxieties, Lord, about life, um, about relationships, about finances, about stuff. Lord, a lot of us have got things under our, just under the surface of our skin that are eating away at us. A lot of fears, a lot of brokenness, a lot of sin, a lot of fa- just failure. <clears throat> God, we all bring those things everywhere we go, this baggage and incredible nature of who you are is that you just meet us in the middle of that. And that, God, your offer is, is to free and redeem, God, to heal and to bind up. And so, Lord, this morning as we open this text, I pray that that's kind of what we'll experience is a God that loves us so deeply, so, so deeply that he'll meet us in the middle of all of that to redeem and rescue. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. Just right there while you sit, I don't know how you want to say it, however you need to, just whisper in your heart, Lord, I want you to just teach my heart. Just a simple prayer. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, uh, around you. Maybe you know their names, maybe you don't. Maybe you're here for the first time and you think that's a little odd. Just, just do it. Just be in the habit of praying for somebody else. Just whisper that God would move in them, that everything this morning does not revolve around you or me, that we would be people that prayed for each other. Just pray that God would move in someone else's life this morning. <clears throat> Lord, we turn this entire morning over to you. You are, you are God, and you are bigger than all of our fears and failures and struggles. God, you are a God that still does miracles and still does the miraculous. And so, Lord, teach our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' holy and perfect um, name. Amen. So John chapter 6, the first part, is the feeding of the 5,000. It's a story, if you've been to church at all in your life, you've probably heard, preached, or taught on, or come across, because it is one of the most important miracles, because it is one that is included in all four Gospels. And so you've probably come up against it, where Jesus takes the loaves and bread and multiplies them among 5,000, and it's, it's a really important part of our understanding of the miraculous nature of who Jesus is. Well, John records it in chapter 6, but we learned something really fascinating about the account from the Gospel of Matthew. <clears throat> Matthew is much more concerned with a sort of chronological order of Jesus' life and making sure that we tell the historicity really well of Jesus. And so when we look at Matthew's Gospel, we see something in the, the beginning of that story that I want you to understand that's going to shape the context of what we're really looking at today. And it's an important part of that and part of the reason why it's so important to read Scripture in its context and understand it in its context. But Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was in prison. 
uh, at the time this miracle is about to happen. He has been imprisoned by Herod Antipas because he had publicly spoken out against Herod's marriage. What had happened was this. There was a guy named Herod Philip who was the brother of Herod Antipas, and he had a wife named Herodias. And one time while Herod Antipas, who was sort of the ruler of the region, the Roman ruler of the region, was spending time at his brother's house and his, I guess, sister-in-law, he spent time with her and he convinced her, Herodias, to leave Herod Philip and marry him. All right, so he talked his brother's wife into leaving his brother and marrying him. Well, Levitical, Mosaic law in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 13 forbids right? You marrying your brother's wife while your brother was still alive. I know most of the stuff, things we don't have to think about or deal with or whatever, but apparently it was a big enough deal that they had a a Moses and that Mosaic law and all that sort of stuff had to put it in writing to say, look, don't marry your brother's wife while he's still alive. That's frowned upon. Well, John the Baptist had spoken publicly about it. He actually denounced the marriage of Herod Antipas and Herodias because it was illegal in his eyes. And of course, that infuriated both Herodias and Herod Antipas because they didn't want this guy that was out there in the wilderness that had the attention of all the Jews declaring their marriage wasn't valid. And so Herod Antipas had John the Baptist thrown in jail. But he didn't kill him because he was afraid of the people. See, John the Baptist, like Jesus, had gained a ton of prominence. People had had begun to cling on to all of his words. You remember our talks about John the Baptist from our first few weeks in this Gospel of John. Like, John the Baptist had gained quite a following of people, and the people actually believed that he was a prophet. They believed that he was the one that was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah that was to come. And so he was an important role and figure. And Herod knew that. And he knew that if he did something to John the Baptist, it would earn the scorn of the people. And since the Romans were occupying the land, they didn't really want to kind of get the Jews involved in an uprising, right? And so Herod was afraid of the people. And so he just imprisoned John the Baptist, right? So, so he makes a bold move, takes his brother's wife. I guess they're not talking, uh, but he puts John the Baptist in jail because John said you can't do that, right? Well, to make the story even weirder, um, Herod's having this dinner. Herod Antipas is having this dinner, and he's got a bunch of guests over. Uh, kind of a big deal, a show. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance kind of that went around these sort of Roman rulers. And he was having this dinner, and he had his wife, Herodias' daughter, dance for the guests. Uh, she came out, so it was his, his wife's daughter came out and danced. And it says in Matthew that he was so pleased that he was so excited about the dancing that she had done that he looked at her and he said, you are incredible. I will give you anything that you want and I make an oath right here in this place to give you whatever you want, right? Well, Matthew tells us that she went and talked to her mom, Herodias, and her mom said, tell Herod Antipas, which is her husband, that I want the head or that you want the head of John the Baptist on a platter tonight. And that's exactly what she does. She says in front of all these people, I would like the head of John the Baptist. Well, Matthew tells us that Herod was like pretty freaked out because he didn't want to kill him, but he just made an oath in front of all these dinner guests. He didn't want to be embarrassed. So rather than being embarrassed, he gave her exactly what she had asked for. And that night he had John the Baptist beheaded and he had his head brought out on a platter and he gave it to the daughter and she took it to her mom, right? And the Jews were actually allowed to come and take John the Baptist's body and take it away. And they immediately went back, Matthew says, and they told Jesus. 
This happens immediately before the miracle of feeding of the 5,000. In fact, Matthew records that as soon as Jesus heard the news, he withdrew on a boat on the lake to be alone, right? And that's when the crowds show up. Now, the reason this is important is because we have to understand the context of these things. Because this miracle of feeding 5,000 doesn't just take place in a vacuum. Jesus has just learned that his cousin, right? His cousin, John the Baptist, who he had encountered, the one that had come to prepare the way, John the witness that was out there proclaiming the way of the Messiah, right? Had just been brutally murdered, right? At the hands of a kind of a madman. Over an oath he made to a daughter because John had said something publicly about a marriage that was illegal. And he killed him. And Jesus learned about this <clears throat> and wanted to spend time alone. And that's where this miracle picks up. All right. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to look at John 6. And let's read it together. But I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because this isn't just like Jesus going, hey, a bunch of people, let me feed them. There's context to these things that are really important. So John starts off in chapter 6 saying, sometime after this, <clears throat> this is the testimonies that had been given about Jesus. Tie that into what Brandon talked about last week. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with the disciples. And the Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered, eight months' wages wouldn't be enough for each of them to have one bite. Another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with, a small bar with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so Many. And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in the place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed those to all who were seated, and they ate as much as they wanted. They did the same with the fish. And when, he had enough, when they had had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, and let nothing be wasted. And they gathered them in 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley, or with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those that had eaten. And after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So miracle's somewhat familiar, and it should be somewhat familiar. If you've, if you've ever been inside church for very often, you've probably heard it talked about. You've heard the miracle alluded to. Jesus feeds 5,000. He does it with five small barley, which were, were it was basically peasant bread. Bread that was made out of barley was bread for poor people, right? A little boy had five small loaves, which are probably no bigger than this, and a couple of fish. And the miracle there that we always see is how did Jesus feed 5,000 people? It actually calls them men, which means there are more like 7,500 to 10,000, most likely, women and children included, with those small things, Right? And a lot of our teaching, our time has been is spent around the miraculous moment there that has to do with the bread and the fish. But when I look at this miracle, I see something really different. Actually, I see something more incredible and amazing to me. And what I see in there is Jesus' deep love for people. Now, the miracle itself, don't get me wrong, is incredible. And it's, it's amazing. And even all the gospel writers include it because it is such a powerful moment where Jesus is demonstrating his, his ability to have power over 
substance, right? Like God does. And John is showing us the nature of the relationship with the Father and the Son and that Jesus is equal with God just by doing this incredible, miraculous thing. But what's even more amazing to me in this is the way that Jesus loves people. I mean, think about it for just a moment, right? I'm going to show you a few things. But the first thing that really jumps out to me is that Jesus always made people his priority. Now think about that context for just a minute. And John doesn't allude to it like Matthew does, but the context is incredible to me. I mean, here's Jesus having just learned, right, that his cousin, someone he loved dearly, and he knew, and actually some of his disciples were actually disciples of John the Baptist, remember? They had left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. So they knew him well. He had just learned that he had not only been in prison, but that he had been brutally murdered at the hands of Herod Antipas over something ridiculous. And Matthew tells us that when he learned of this news, he withdrew on a boat to find a solitary place. We pick up in John, he's crossing the lake, and the crowds are coming. 5,000, 7,500, 10,000 people, when they see Jesus head out on a boat, you know what they do on the Sea of Galilee? They walk clean around the other side, which was hours and hours of walking. When they see Jesus leaving, those masses of crowds, they just keep going. And when Jesus lands on the other side of the lake, Matthew tells us the crowds were there waiting for him. John actually says that he went up on a mountain when he got there, and then he saw the crowds coming. So he went up on a mountainside, sat with his disciples, and he looks over and he sees this massive crowd of people. And if there ever been a moment in the life of Jesus where you would have given him a pass on saying, hey, look, today's just not the day. Like, come back tomorrow. I'll deal with all of you then. But today I'm just going to sit with my friends and we're going to talk about John or we're going to talk about whatever or I'm just going to grieve and be sad because Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully Human, all the emotions that go with humanity are wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Death and pain and sorrow are real. And his heart is grieving. And he wanted to be alone until the crowds showed up. Matthew records a really incredible kind of picture there when it says that he saw the crowds coming, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. So these crowds aren't just coming to see Jesus. They're coming because Jesus had done miraculous things. John actually tells us they came because they had seen the signs that he had performed on the sick. In other words, they saw and had heard Jesus do miraculous things. And so from all the surrounding countryside and towns, they brought their broken people. They brought their sick. They brought their needs. They brought everyone that they wanted Jesus to touch and heal and fix They brought all of their wants and all of their needs in the form of people with them. So that 5,000 was not just a crowd that was going to a conference to hear some great speaker. They were a crowd of people that were bringing with them broken and sick and hurting because they had known that Jesus had done the miraculous before. And they wanted him to do it again. And Matthew says he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them, and he spent the day healing their sick. This crowd was needy, man. It was needy. It wasn't just, hey, Jesus, we're all here because we know you lost your cousin and we want to hug you and tell you how much we love you and just sit with you. No, they were needy. They brought their stuff and they brought their things and they brought their I wants. Jesus, do this, do this for me, give me this, I want this. Here, I'm next, I'm next, I'm next, I'm next. That's what this crowd was full of. 
And if any point in our lives we'd ever look at Jesus and just go, hey, man, you get a break, it would probably be this day. Any of you that have kids know what it's like to just want a breath, right? Like literally just an afternoon without somebody demanding something from me or needy people, right, in your life or work or stuff or whatever it is just for a solitary single moment to not have somebody that wants something from me. And we use the thing like, I got to take care of myself or I got to nurture my heart or I got to do whatever it is. But all the people around me are so demanding doesn't happen all the time, but it happens in those waves. And Jesus is certainly in one of those moments where he's just nursing all of the human side of hurt. When he looks up and he sees this crowd full of needy people at that exact moment, right? <clears throat> well, any one of us would have said, uh-uh, not, not today. We'd have hidden, right? We'd run for the hills. Maybe they won't see me. Shh. But Jesus always made people his priority. And so even in the middle of his hurt and his loss and his pain, he looked at this crowd of thousands of needy people and he just had compassion on them. Matthew says that he just saw them and healed them and felt for them. Because even though they were coming very needy, Jesus loved them. And he loved people so much that all of their priorities were above his. He always made people his priority. And as I look at the first part of this miracle, I just think about how selfish I am. How selfish my life is and how much it is driven around me and what I need and what I want and wherein things are convenient. I'm a really great lover of people when it is convenient. But man, when it's not, I want out. Needy people are hard, right? And the funny thing is, is that we're the neediest of all of them. We always focus on our own needs and our own wants, and we become our own priority. And at some point in time, as followers of Christ, we have to decide that we're going to shift the priority off of ourselves and onto other people. Like, this whole thing isn't about me. Like, even though I do want a time right now where I just want to breathe, I have people in my life that, that need me or that need time or that need things. I have a coworker that's going through a great loss or I have someone in my office that just doesn't know the Lord and as much as I want to shut my door, maybe I want to love them the way that Jesus loves me. And even in the middle of my own humanity, wanting my own sort of solitary place to make a person a priority that says, no, you get the best of me. Right? This is what Jesus did. And he calls his followers of Christ to make that same priority. It's why people matter in life, in work, at home. The people matter. Relationships matter because they matter to Jesus. In your place of work, believe it or not, people matter. And I'm not talking about customers. I'm talking about people. At school, they matter. Who you sit next to, they matter because they matter to Christ. As followers of Christ, we are called to make people the priority the way that Jesus makes people the priority, Right? And you know how he does that? He does it by creating time and space for them. So listen to what he says to Andrew. So he sees this crowd coming, and John, he says this, when Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, excuse me, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? And he says he asks only to test him for all he knew what he was going to do. And, and uh, Philip chimes up and he says, eight Months wages could not buy enough food for everybody here to have a single bite. I mean, think about the size of that crowd, right? Eight months wages, and we couldn't buy enough food for this 5,000, 7,500, 10,000 crowd to have 
a single bite of food. Where are we going to buy bread for all these people? Matthew records it as the disciples start freaking out first, actually. It's getting late. The people are gathering around, and they're starting talking among themselves, going, we've got to send these people home. Because if they stay, we're going to be required to take care of their needs. And they look at Jesus, and they say, Jesus, send these people home. If they don't go home, we've got to feed them. Right? Who's going to feed them? And Jesus looks at the disciples, and he says, you give them something to eat. In both scenarios, the question is really about creating time and space for these people. Jesus never intended to send them home, right? In fact, it's kind of a loaded question. Where are we going to buy enough bread for these people to eat? He doesn't say, should we? Can we? He says, where are we going to do it? In other words, it's going to happen. So where are we going to do it? And he says it only to kind of have these guys think differently about the crowd. The crowd wasn't a burden to Jesus. It was a burden to the disciples. It was eight months' wages. They didn't look out and see people. They looked out and saw eight months' worth of money. In Matthew, they didn't look out and see people. They saw an obligation. Jesus never sees this crowd as an obligation or as wages. He looks out and sees them as people, and he created time and space for them. And John says, Jesus had them sit down because there was enough grass for all of them to sit. I mean, think about this for a moment. Jesus creates time and space in his own life that is chaos at the moment for an unwelcome crowd of wanting, needing, selfish people. And he created the time and space for them. When it would have been easy, and Matthew records, to send them home, just tell them to go back to their home, come back tomorrow. They could feed themselves. That takes one less burden off of our plate, right? Plus, we don't have near enough money to even go out and buy bread for these people They're just going to suck the life out of us. And the disciples saw them that way, but Jesus creates time and space for them, which I find incredible. It would have been easy to send them home. There's nothing wrong with sending them home, but Jesus says, no, sit. There's plenty of grass here. I got plenty of room. Plenty of room. I started thinking about this this week as I was spending time kind of wrestling with this text, and I thought about my own life and just... You know, my own selfishness, but more so just how bad I am about creating time and space for people, even important people in my life, even my children and my wife and the things that really matter to me, how, how poorly I create time and space for the things that matter and the people that matter. And yet here's Jesus in the middle of his own desperate need, kind of emotionally dealing with all the things he's dealing with, probably wanting in his heart just to spend solitary time with the disciples, as Matthew tells us. And this crowd of needy people shows up, and Jesus doesn't just deal with them nicely. He creates time for them and space for them, and he says, you all just stay here. We'll feed you. There's plenty of grass. Sit down. And the truth was there wasn't. 10,000 people, food, eight months' wages. There wasn't that stuff, but Jesus was going to make it happen because they mattered. There's not enough time and space in the day for everything that you have going on and all of your people and all of the things and all the demands that you have. There's not. So what does it mean? It means that we have to create it. It's not going to just naturally arise that there's going to be more hours in a day. So what do you do? You have to create time and space for people, right? You have to be intentional about saying there's plenty of grass here. There's plenty of food. We will figure it out because you matter. 
we had some good friends that came through town, um, oh gosh, it was a year or two ago. They were on their way traveling uh, north, and they were passing from, through from Texas. And, and I remember when he called and said, hey, we need a place to stay. And I remember feeling really, really guilty because it was a really chaotic time in our life, and all these things were going on. And the last thing we had space and time for was house guests, and they had a lot of kids, and it was just, you know, going to be a lot of work. And it reminded me of that scene from Christmas Vacation where they're sitting out there in the yard and Eddie shows up with the RV out there and he's like, don't go getting too used to it, Clark. We're going to take it with us when we leave here next month. That's what I felt like was going to happen, right? That, there's an RV. Um, and I was just like, I don't know, man. I, but I was deeply, deeply convicted that this is what my life should exist for, for people to, to be able to look at them and say, I want to create time and space for you because you matter. And we don't get these moments back, right? And even in all the stuff that was going on, Jesus just created time and space for people. What if I ask your wife or your husband or your kids how much time and space you give them? What would their answer be? Your coworkers, your people that matter in your life, or just people, how, how much would they say they get of you? As a dad, do they get your best do you create time and space for your, your wife, for your husband, for your neighbors? I mean, these are really convicting questions, and not convicting because they're super spiritual, but just convicting because that's how Jesus calls us to live, to create time and space for people because they matter to Jesus. No, nobody has enough time to just continue to do things, so you have to make it and prioritize it, and people should always be the priority over stuff and things, but you cannot read scripture, right, and not see that. People always matter first. Jesus always made them the priority, and he always created time and space for them, even in this chaotic moment. What about the people in your life? Are you creating time and space for them? Are they getting your best? Your children, your wife, your spouse, your husband, your friends, your coworkers, your guys, girls you go to school with, do they get the best of who you are, right? It's an interesting question. The last thing I want you to see, and then we'll, we'll kind of share communion together. The last thing I want you to see is, it's a little bit more of a stretch, but I, I really see it in here, and I want to just lift it out because I think it's, it's really powerful. All right? it's a, I know I'm reading a little bit into this text to see this, but it's, I just think it's there. And I just sort of wrap it up with a statement. It's just simple like this. Like, don't miss the moment. All right, so listen to what happens. So Jesus has the people sit down in the grass. There's plenty of grass. <clears throat> Had them sit down. 5,000 men, right? Five barley loaves from a little kid. Small, poor people, bread. Little, little kid. And two small fish. And passes it all out. And everybody eats to their full. And then he looks at the disciples and he says, Hey, guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and gather up all the pieces that are left over so that nothing is wasted. <clears throat> so they do it. And they come back. And they filled 12 baskets full of bread and fish. Started off in one basket, right? Five little loaves, two little fish. They come back with 12 baskets full of food. Nothing in Scripture is arbitrary. I feel like the number 12 is really important there. How many disciples are there? 12. I believe they're probably all holding a basket. You know how incredible that moment is when you come walking back to Jesus, having stood there going, we don't have eight months' wages to feed these people. We got five small poor people bread loaves and two fish and one basket. And we all come walking back with a full basket, 12 of us. Can you imagine the look on their eyes and the excitement that was kind of running through them going, 
what just happened? Can you believe? We just fed, and they're all holding these things. In fact, it was so significant that it's the only miracle that's recorded in all of the Gospels. That's how powerful this moment was. Matthew records saying that they just worshiped the Lord. Well, the people were astounded at the miracle that had taken place, and none more than the disciples. They would talk about this moment for the rest of their lives. They would write about it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they would record it. They would write it down. It was that powerful, that important. That moment was that magnificent. And Jesus, all through Scripture, never misses a moment. He's never in a hurry. He never has to be somewhere. He always prioritizes people, creates time and space for them, and he celebrates these incredible moments that people talk about and remember and celebrate for all their lives. And I was thinking about that moment the disciples must have had when Jesus wasn't around, looking at each other going, what in the world? Can you believe what we just saw? It changed them. Jesus had just told them all that he and the Father are one, and now they're seeing this demonstration of power again. And this Jesus is who he said he is. And those moments matter. And I started thinking about this in the context of how Jesus loves people, right? He makes them their priority, creates time and space for them, but he just never misses moments to change the lives of people. He never misses moments for them. And I, I transfer this over to my own life all the time when I just teach and preach because it's just the stuff that I end up teaching and preaching is just a, an expression of what God is teaching my heart. But I've missed way too many moments in my life, right? You don't get them back. You know, I'm 39, five times over, and you don't get them back, man. You don't do the math. Um, you don't get them back, right? Uh, they're moments, and they're fleeting, and we're often wrapped up in ourselves or in work or in life or in whatever, and we miss these moments. And I'm not just talking about the simple little things, you know, that your kids grow up or do whatever, but I'm just talking about moments to celebrate with people, to laugh and to tell stories and to sit around and to remember, right? And do things that matter so you can talk about those things for the rest of your life. This is what Jesus gave people. He gave them stories to retell about his glory for the rest of their lives. The moments he gave the disciples are changing you and me. They wrote them down, and they are affecting us 2,000 years later because those moments matter. Create moments in your life that matter and don't miss them, right? We don't get this stuff back. We're not guaranteed that we walk out of here and have one more breath, right? Laugh, love, live, create moments with people, retell stories, talk about God's faithfulness and his goodness, and smile more. Because the God of the universe loves you. No matter what you've done, no matter what your failings are, no matter what you drug in here this morning, no matter how bad it is, God's freedom and forgiveness is real through Jesus Christ. That alone should change the trajectory of our hearts if we believe that to be true. The gospel should change the way that we think about time and space and people. Because I don't have anything left to be anxious and worry about. Because God has promised to take care of all of it. He has freed me from sin and death and he has promised to never leave me nor forsake me. So why do I sit and wallow? Jesus made people his priority, created time and space for them and he made moments that mattered. 
Don't miss any more moments, right? Create beautiful moments that matter in the context of the gospel. Jesus did things that people could intentionally celebrate. Those moments are what are hallmarks to our faith in Jesus Christ. Communion is a perfect example of that, right? He created a moment for his disciples that would mark the rest of their lives, that they would all remember and they would celebrate. And we are celebrating this moment with believers all through time. This is the unifying table, right? It's what unites believers from all space and time. It's what unites us with believers in China or Bolivia, France, wherever. It's what unites us with people up and down the street right next door, right? Crown United Methodist Church, this table unites us with them because of a common love for Jesus Christ, not a difference in how we worship. This table is a single unifying factor of the gospel because the expression of the love of Christ poured out on the cross. And it is a moment that we can't miss. That Jesus intentionally created moments that mattered. Don't miss these moments. This table is an incredible expression of God's faithfulness. It's the expression of the gospel poured out for you and poured out for me. On the very night, John's actually going to read, we'll see this in chapter 13, but on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, the very night that he would be handed over, the very night he would be deserted by all of his friends, he sat with his disciples and he gave them this moment. And he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes again. This table is that incredible moment that unites us as followers of Christ. It is not an arbitrary part of our worship. It is not something that we just partake in because it's habit and we show up on a Sunday the first part of the month, and we celebrate it together. This is the defining moment of the gospel because if this isn't true, if Jesus did not die and was not raised from the dead, then everything that we believe is worthless. This moment is about people. It's about you. It's about the fact that God loved you, me, so deeply and desperately that he sent his son to die to give us life. No matter what you've done, no matter what your failures are, right? you matter that much to the king. This is not an arbitrary moment. It's a beautiful moment that shows how much Jesus loved and made people a priority, even over his own life. This morning, we're going to take communion by means of intention. It's a simple, fancy word that says as you come down front or in the back, take a piece of bread and you can dip it in the cup and then you can eat it. For those of you with uh, all kinds of gluten issues. We've got uh, a gluten-free bowl of Jesus bread, so you're welcome to partake in that as well. Just (laughs) let us know. We'll have that down here as well. That'll be down front. Um, Let's pray together, and then we'll continue in worship and share communion. Lord, we are so honored to even gather amongst believers in your name. Lord, this table unites us as followers of Christ across space and time. It unites us, Lord, as people, believers that have committed our lives to Christ, have surrendered to Jesus. Lord, it connects us to our brothers across the street, our sisters uh, across the city, to our families across the globe. God, we are united in Christ because you are a God who loved people enough, loved humanity enough, loved creation enough to send your son to die so that we might know eternal life through his resurrection. 
So, Lord, we don't take our time here this morning lightly. We take it very seriously, and we love the opportunity to know you more and to worship you. We ask this in Jesus' holy and perfect name. Amen. About our servers to come forward this morning. We'll have two stations, one in the front, one in the back. And as they get set, just as you feel led and free, come partake in this meal.